Welcome to Australian Hiker. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode three of the Australian Hiker podcast. Today we're going to be discussing the 10 steps for planning a safe, enjoyable hike. And then we're going to go on to provide some background information on one of Australia and the world's best known hikes, the Larapinta Trail in the Northern Territory. The first segment on today's episode is 10 steps to planning a hiking trip. Now on any hike, whether it be a a single day or a month long trip, we normally have some sort of uh, reason for doing it. It might be just as simple as you just want to go for a walk. Uh, it might be that you want to have a look at some, some bird life or some flowers that you're particularly interested in. And it might be just a, one of those trips that are on your bucket list and you really have been itching to do this for a long time. Um, now to get the most out of acti- any, any hike, uh, uh, as well as doing it in a safe manner, it needs to, the trip needs to be planned very carefully. The longer the trip, the more complex the trip, the more planning you'll need to do. So step one is planning your hike. Uh, And this is as simple as it sounds. You can't just sort of say, well, I'm just going to go through and have a walk, um, throw some gear in a bag and just go. Uh, It might be okay for just a short trip or a a half day trip that you know really well. Uh, But for longer trips, you're going to need to do a bit more in-depth planning. Now, as far as planning your hike is concerned, factors you need to consider is, do you need a permit? Uh, In the case of the Overland Track in Tasmania is probably a good example here. Um, You need to book unless you're traveling out of season. Uh, And out of season um, is basically winter time, so most people do tend to to track during the summer. Uh, And you you must actually have a track permit uh, and go on the day that you planned, just so the track doesn't get overcrowded. You need to work out how many people will be in the group or if you're hiking by yourself. Now the ideal ideal from a safety perspective is four persons per group. Now the idea behind this is that um, if a person has an accident, someone can stay with them and look after them and the other two can actually hike out and bring help. Nothing wrong with hiking with smaller groups, but the smaller the group or hiking solo, it means you're going to need to have all your planning very well uh, down. You're going to need to have all the safety equipment and know what you're going to do in case a problem occurs. You also need to going to have a fair bit of experience, particularly on more complex tracks. Now, in relation to um, uh, the research for, the, for a hike, research really is one of those things that you can't get away with uh, without doing. So the longer the trip, the more you're going to need to do. And here is where the internet and fellow hikers, as well as guidebooks, uh, will help to provide most, if not all, the information you'll need. Do you need a map or a compass to navigate, or is the trail well set out? Identify any dangers or issues that may impact on what you are doing. Um, So as an example, is it snake season? Is the heat going to be excessive? Um, is the uh, the track rough uh, and slippery or 
um, is it possible to lose footing? Um, in relation to research, you're also going to need to work out what your emergency plan is. Uh, what you know, in case of an emergency, what are you going to do? Will you walk out? And if so, when do you make that decision? Will you set your Will you set off your emergency beacon if you're carrying one? And if so, when? Now, safety beacons are designed as an emergency beacon, not because you've you're you're, you're tired or you don't think you can make it out. It's because you are uh, either seriously injured or likely to be, uh, and need need your urgent assistance. Will your phone work? Now, a lot of remote hikes and a lot of remote areas, uh, um, your phone may not actually work. Um, so you need to know that's the case. If you've been relying on, or if you plan on relying on your phone in case of emergency and it doesn't work, that's going to be a problem. And this is where having the personal locator beacons tend to be a backup. You may also want to carry a satellite phone if you're going somewhere really remote. And again, if you're traveling solo, it's probably not a bad idea. There are a number of new satellite options that are available in Australia now, uh, and they're not certainly as cheap as uh, as mobile phone coverage, but again, they're, they're designed as an emergency process. Step two is fit to hike. This is an interesting one, Tim, in that... Um I, th I think sometimes we assume when we're undertaking particular uh, activities and sports uh, that if we do it a lot, we'll, we'll be fit enough and we'll be okay. Um, fit to hike is really about being fit and having a, a proper general level of fitness to suit the sort of hiking that you're going to do. Unless you're hiking um, a lot uh, you know, every few days for long periods, you're probably not going to be able to develop your fitness sufficiently to be able to support your hiking. So that fitness comes from, you know, good general physical activity as well as preparation uh, hikes and making sure, again, after you've done your planning, making sure you understand the sort of terrain that you'll be, um, you'll be walking along. And, you know, being able to carry your pack is one thing, being able to carry your pack over long distance or um, uh, uneven terrain or with lots and highs and lows. So as much preparation as you can is important in the sorts of conditions that you're planning to uh, hike in. Step three is skill level, and that's being able to hike within your own ability. Uh, you need to know what your ability is and what skills that you have. And if you're planning on hiking beyond your current skill level, you might even look at saying, well, do I want to change the hike or do I should I do a different one? Or ideally, go with, a, with someone else that has more experience and that'll help you to learn and improve your own skills. Step four, equipment. Now, this comes back to research again. So to know what equipment you need to carry, you're going to have to go through and have done a fair amount of research. And based on your research and your experience, you need to assemble all your gear well in advance of the trip and ensure that it's in good working order. Consider replacing gear that's in poor condition and can't be repaired. Now, I, uh, I have quite a range of gear. Um, a lot of it, a lot of this little smaller bits and pieces I've had for quite a few years. Um, while it's not 
the most modern of equipment, it still works and it's still in good working condition. So once a piece of equipment becomes unsafe or starts falling apart or is about to fall apart, time to replace it. Just a comment on boots there as part of the uh, equipment that you take with you. Sometimes uh, boots don't necessarily show uh, the amount of age and the amount of wear um, and you might not think that you've, you've worn your boots uh, enough to wear them out uh, but just consider as you're wearing uh, out your boots as the more you wear them uh, the less reliable they're going to become perhaps the more uncomfortable they might be and if that's a short walk in an afternoon and it's, it's probably not going to be uh, too much of a, an, an issue but if you're starting to feel the wear on your boots your feet just don't quite feel right after a few days you'll really 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 notice that so you know just be aware that your boots and other parts of your gear might not look um, uh, as if they need to be replaced but there are other signs uh, in terms of the comfort you know when you you first had had them versus now that they're a little bit older step five check the weather now we're doing an activity that is outside it's very dependent on the weather um, it really doesn't matter if you're hiking in the rain or hiking in the sun or even hiking in the snow as long as you're prepared for those conditions and you have the ability to to actually keep yourself safe uh, for the skills that you're actually uh, for the the trip that you're actually doing so really with checking the weather check the short-term weather uh, if it's only going to be a one-day hike you want to make sure you know what's happening through the day and what the forecast is if you're doing a longer trip go through and check the long-term weather forecast certainly these days uh, the weather forecast in Australia is reasonably accurate up to around about seven days out uh, but if you're doing say a two-week trip then you've got a bit more of a a guesstimate to work out what the planning is going to be. In this sort of situation, if you are doing a three or four week trip, that's where you want to go through and start doing looking at the historical weather conditions for the particular area that you're going to be hiking in. And you can normally go back and look at weather conditions for the last 12 months, see what the weather conditions have been. And if you're planning on going on a longer trip in, say, three or four weeks, see what the weather's doing now realizing that we are going to be getting warmer or if you're coming into uh, autumn and winter uh, the weather's likely to be getting colder uh, so if you, you can look at what the weather's doing now and then what it's doing in three weeks you can then see if you need uh, different equipment than what you've actually planned for step six dress for success now Wear or dress for expected conditions and always allow for warmer or colder conditions than you actually expect. I've done hikes where I've expected to have zero degrees or two degrees or minus two degrees and sometimes we get a warm front coming through and it might only get down to 10 degrees Celsius and, and be much warmer than we've expected. I've also had the opposite where I've expected to have minimum temperatures at night time of two or three degrees and we've ended up with minus four. Uh, now I always tend to, my, my hiking equipment that I tend to, or my hiking clothing that I tend to wear, uh, what I carry, unless it's really hot or in the middle of summer, I'll always tend to carry long johns and a, an underlayer 
and that will usually cover me down to around about minus seven degrees. So anything more, anything colder than that, I'm starting to definitely change what equipment I'm going to be carrying. Step seven, food and water. Now, sometimes you'll know exactly what water sources are available. The, the trail reports will be very good. You've done the hike before. You've talked to a number of people. You know there are rivers or creeks that are, are very reliable. You know there are water tanks on the trail. Um, so you'll be able to carry just what you need to, to cover you from water tank to water tank or stream to stream. In a lot of cases, though, you may not necessarily know this, this, this information or there may not be any water on the trail and you may have to actually carry it. So depending on what the weather actually is, if it's, a, if it's winter time, you may not need as much. If it's the middle of summer and it's very hot, you're certainly going to need a lot, lot more water because you'll sweat a lot more. Monitor your water intake. Too little or too much uh, can both be dangerous. I've uh, had some involvement with the um, Dakota Track in Papua New Guinea. Uh, and a number of years ago, uh, there was actually a hiker who died from drinking too much water. It's not common, but it does occur. And people tend not to think about it. They always tend to think, I've got to drink plenty of water. I'm aware I need to drink lots of water. But they don't think about drinking too much. So again, too little, too much, both can be dangerous. Just on the side of the food, um, we do tend to take more food than we generally would need. Um, we, we also need to be a little bit careful of losing interest in um, eating along the way. Sometimes when you exercise, you, you, you sort of move beyond the need for lots of food. That's probably okay for a day or so but if you're if you or you're with someone who's starting to really lose interest in their food uh, that's probably not a good sign um, as well and um, you know something to monitor and to, something to think about along the way judging how much food you need is often a really difficult sort of thing if you look at a lot of the hiking uh, guidebooks and a lot of the hiking practice books the recommendation is somewhere around 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 about the seven to eight hundred grams per person per day dry weight. So with a lot of a uh, lot of food, you might have to add water to, uh, but you're carrying that sort of seven to eight hundred grams, which is approximately about two pounds worth of food per person. So that means if you're doing a ten day trip and carrying ten days worth of food, you're carrying approximately twenty pounds or around about seven to, uh, uh, seven to eight sort of kilos of food. Uh, and that's that certainly tends to add to your weight. Uh, but it, it, this is one of these sort of things where you need to sort of keep a track of, as you do hikes, make a note of how much food you consume. Um, for me, I tend to start out hungry on a hike. I lose a bit of appetite. Another five or six days past that again, I tend to start getting my appetite back again and start looking for more food and different food. So it's not a matter of saying, well, I'm going to have the same food every day for, for one or two or three or four days. It may be a matter of varying the food depending on what your own food requirements are like. The other thing in relation to food, um, on a long hiking day where I'm doing 15 to 20 kilometers on fairly steep terrain, I'll consume approximately around about 6,000 calories. Um, now there's no way that I can actually replace 6,000 calories worth of food by carrying it, 
my pack would be so heavy on a long trip it's just not practical. So in that sort of situation, I expect to lose weight. But it's again, it's a factor you need to go through and consider. Now, step eight, before you go, tell someone. Leave a copy of your detailed plan with somebody and it needs to be someone reliable. It's no good passing a set of a plan to, uh, as, an, as in my example, my 89-year-old mother. Uh, her memory is not too good. Uh, she may not even remember I've given it to her. So it needs to be someone who knows where you're going, knows when you're coming back, um, and will know what to do uh, because you've, you've passed the information on to them that if you don't come back by a certain time, they know who to contact. Ensure that the hiking information um, is logged into your personal locator beacon if you are carrying one. Um, into the regist registration system on the Australian Maritime Safety Authority website. Um, most people will buy beacons, they'll register them, and then they tend to forget. Um, so I must admit, I, uh, I tend to, one of my longer hikes, I'll go through and enter all the, the details, I'll make sure the emergency information is updated, I'll come back, and that's one of the first things I do is actually to remove all that information. Um, if by some chance your beacon goes off accidentally, uh, they can certainly locate where it is, but if you're, uh, the online system says you're doing a particular hike in a particular location, it doesn't particularly help them. Step nine, hike your plan. Now we talked about step one as being plan your hike. In this case, hike your plan. Whatever you've planned to do, make sure that you stick to it or if you are going to vary it, let somebody know. So if you plan on extending your trip by a couple of days and you're not going to be back when you've told someone, they're going to start worrying. If you're going to shorten your trip, if it's possible, let them know. They'll certainly be expecting you back by a particular day. And if you get back a bit earlier and you let them know, that's not too much of an issue. Fill out the trail registers if they exist. Um, if you go missing in the bush, and the trail registers are there, the people who are looking for you will look at the trail registers as they, if, as and when they're available. If they've seen that you've come past a certain point, but you haven't reached the next checkpoint, they have a, that will give them a reasonably good idea where to start looking. On some of the busier trails, the trail registers, I think, are, um, it's the part that builds the community a little bit. Uh, so when when you're coming and going, you start to have conversations with people about the names that you see in the trail register and and you look at uh, you know how well they've progressed and some of the interesting comments that they might make and it's really quite nice when uh, you do bump into people along the way and you have read something that they've written in the in a trail register so it's not just about uh, you know giving others a little bit of a, a monitor of how you're going and, and uh, if in case of emergency you need uh, need some, uh, some people to be guided on what leg of the trail you might be on, it's also a nice community, nice um, sort of conversational aspect of walking a particular trail as well. And the last step is let someone know that you're back. So you've gone through and done all the planning, you've told someone where you're going, uh, you've had your trip, um, and 
now you're sitting in the pub at the end of the trip thinking that was really wonderful uh, now what was I supposed to do again uh, so make sure you tell, tell the person that who is your backup who's got your emergency information who is there to basically call the emergency services if something goes wrong tell them you've actually come back I have seen situations where people have forgotten um, it creates a bit of a panic now for me if uh, if I've been asked to to be a an emergency contact for somebody and they haven't turned up my first thing I'll go through and do is call them on their phone to see if they're actually there if they don't answer and you can't contact them that's when you can certainly start worrying this next segment on this episode is to do with the Larapinta trail and we're going to provide you a bit of a, a review of the trail as far as what the trail's about where it is and what the sort of things you can actually expect the Larapinta Trail is located in the Northern Territory, uh, which is the northern central part of Australia. The trail itself is approximately 223 kilometres long, or 139 miles. The trail was originally started in, in the mid-1990s and finished in approximately 2002. The trail starts at uh, Alice Springs and finishes at Mount Sonder. Um, the original intent of the trail was to carry through to Mount Zeal, which is the highest uh, mountain in the Northern Territory, um, but it never actually eventuated that. The trip itself, the track itself consists of 12 sections. Uh, and as I said, the track's actually designed to start in Alice Springs and finish in Mount Sonda. However, a lot of people now do the trip backwards and they'll start at Mount Sonda and travel back into Alice Springs itself. The reason for this is it means you can be dropped off at Mount Sonder, you're walking your way back to Alice Springs, uh, and if you get back early, um, it's not a real problem. Whereas if you turn up at Mount Sonder early and you're going to wait a day for your transport or your pickup to turn up, uh, it makes it a bit more awkward. Now, the uh, Northern Territory Government produce a good trail pack, uh, which explains each of the segments of the Larapinta Trail. And there's actually six brochures that are on relatively waterproof sort of paper that are provided. Um, and they work really well if you're going from Alice Springs to Mount Sonder. They do tend to read a bit backwards if you're going the other way. And that's, a, uh, that's one of the awkward sort of things when you're, uh, when you're trying to go against what, what is considered the normal trail setup. Most of the segments are designed to be completed in one day, although there are some segments that can actually be, be done in two. So if you read a number of the guidebooks that are available on the trail, the recommendation is to actually complete the trail in approximately 18 to 20 days. And at that pace, that's a fairly comfortable sort of walk. A lot of people now uh, will actually do the trip a lot quicker. Um, it's not unusual to do a 13, 14, 15 day track. Some people will do it as, as quick as 10, uh, but once you start doing that, it, uh, it starts becoming a, a phys much more physically demanding sort of track. The best time of the year to do the track uh, is in the cooler months of the year from approximately sort of mid-April through to around about mid-September. Some hardy souls do actually do the trip during the, the warmer months. Uh, but in the middle of summer, the temperatures are getting up to around about mid-40 degrees. Um, it becomes a lot more physically demanding. You need a lot more experience. 
there's a lot more uh, snakes out on the trail um, uh, and it's a not, not a very well sheltered trail so you're actually out in the heat and the sun quite a lot. So really from an enjoyment perspective, the, the winter time, uh, late, late autumn through to uh, mid-spring is probably the time to go through and do it. Those sort of conditions means you might be getting down to um, sort of minus four degrees uh, at the coldest. Daytime temperatures can be up around about the 20 degrees uh, and certainly they can actually still get up to uh, into the high 20s, uh, early 30s, even during the cooler months of the year. The track itself is very well laid out. Um, it's signposted and there's a series of blue arrows that point the way. Um, the maps or guide sheets that come with the trail um, uh, are fairly easy to follow and it's not the sort of track that you necessarily need to be able to navigate to to actually do. Uh, but you do need navigation skills if you are actually going to have to get off the trail and, and you need to navigate uh, away from the, the form trail itself. The track itself is very similar to a lot of the American type trails. Uh, the Appalachian Trail is an example where you've got trail heads uh, and they've got uh, a number of facilities at each of these areas. So at Mount Sonder is an example, there's a toilet block and there's a water tank. Um, some of the other trails, as the, as the time goes on, they're starting to put uh, shelters. Uh, so you've got weatherproof shelters that you can actually sleep in. Uh, still not insect proof, but they can keep you out of the sun and keep you out of the uh, the uh, 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 the rain if it is if is or is fairly poor, or and keep you out of the uh, the hot the hot winds if it's a, it's a blowing a bit. Um, there are toilets on most of the trailheads, um, even if there aren't trail uh, trail shelters. Water is normally fairly well catered for. Um, they, in fact, they actually have uh, radio-based sensors on each of the water tanks that actually send signals back to um, the actual uh, the ranger stations. Uh, and talking to a ranger, they indicated that um, they don't like the water tanks getting lower than around about 50%. So typically you only have to tend to carry one day of water. Although depending on how you do the trip, there are a couple of sections where you will need to carry two days of water uh, because the actual reliability of streams isn't particularly good depending on the times of the year. It can be quite wet, but it also can be quite dry, so you don't want to have to rely on water. The trail itself is one of the best known in Australia and probably one of the best known in the world. Um, it's not an overly long trail like some of the, the big American trails, but it's, it's one of those sort of trails that um, most people who do it really do enjoy it. You can do just sections if you wish, um, uh, and you can actually drive in, be dropped off, walk a section, and be picked up at the next section. At worst case, you might have to do two sections at the longest. So if you want to do this over a period of years, you, can, you certainly can do it. It's a hard trail physically. Uh, uh, there's... Probably the landscape, the best way to describe it is rock with a bit of soil rather than the other way around. So certainly there's a lot of rock on the trail. You are walking on rock. It's not a soft sort of sandy trail like uh, or soft soft soil like in a lot of other trails that most people are used to. 
Now, in relation to planning on the Lara Pinta Trail, I tend to be an obsessive sort of planner. Uh, I probably spent just on two years, uh, not two, obviously not two years solid, but I spent two years planning on the trip, um, working out what I wanted to do. And there were sort of, from my perspective, there were, there were some gaps in the, in the information that I, that, uh, that I, want, that I needed to find. Uh, and to give you an example for this, um, there's not much information on where you can actually get mobile phone signals on the trail. Uh, there are some areas, but you've really got to sort of search and try to find where they are. Uh, footwear is probably another one. Um, if you go through and search the internet, uh, the Larapenta Trail has a reputation for eating hiking boots. Uh, but I've known people who have hiked the Larapenta Trail wearing trail runners, wearing full-on leather hiking boots, um, and they've both been successful uh, using those sort of processes. So it's, it's, it's a bit hard to find out what the recommendations are. The other things that are going to be, be a bit hard to find is rubbish disposal. Um, there are three opportunities to have food drops done on the Larapenta Trail. So usually you're not having to carry your whole food. Uh, you can actually uh, get a regular food drop uh, if you organize it uh, three times through the trip. Um, and usually there are rubbish bins in those areas or what a lot of people tend to do is leave their rubbish in the, the box they've just taken all their food out of. So when the company comes and picks up the boxes, they're taking rubbish away as well. But that's something you do need to check with those companies to make sure they're actually happy with that. The same companies that do uh, the food drops will also operate a transport service as well. So it's actually quite easy to get up to the, to the Mount Sonder Trailhead. Um, uh, people will, uh, there are uh, tr uh, transport going on a fairly regular basis. Um, so it's, uh, it's really a matter of uh, finding a company and choosing one that you're happy with because prices do tend to vary. And along with that, uh, the days that people do drop-offs also tend to vary. So it's going to be a matter of what suits the trip that you have planned. Now, this is all for today's episode. But the next three episodes that we'll have uh, coming up is actually recorded on the trail. Uh, so we'll be going through and telling you about our experiences on the Larapinta Trail. We'll be talking to other hikers uh, and then providing a roundup of how we actually found the trail um, after we'd done it uh, and what, what, how our expectations actually uh, panned out in real life, whether they... Uh, they came true or whether things were totally as or totally unexpected and i think it's going to be a bit of both all right hope you enjoyed and we'll talk to you soon bye for now